All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bible in a Year podcast. I am your host, Jay Smith. With me today, it's a special day, Jimmy, Travis, as usual, but we have a special guest, the one, the only Shelly Johnson is joining us because the Lord revealed some things never revealed ever before about the transfiguration. And so she's going to share that with us uh, as part of our podcast. <laughs> it is a lot of pressure, but that's okay. For, for all of the people who are listening in, uh, for the, for the 10 <laughs> people who are listening in other countries, this is a thing oh, called golly. sarcasm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that not a universal language? But we are in chapter eight and uh, we've got chapter nine as well. So this was a two chapter week. And so we uh, got a lot to cover. And so before I waste any more time, I want to just invite you as we do every single week to join us at read-scripture.com because we believe that scripture is intended to be read in community. And so take some time, join us there as we're reading through the gospels in 2022. We are in the gospel of Mark. We're actually at the halfway point uh, or just over the halfway point in the gospel of Mark. And, and we're going to be in the triumphal entry and all of those things here before too long. But today we are in chapter eight and chapter nine. And so Chapter eight starts with a second feeding. This is the feeding of the 4,000. Just a few chapters early, we had started or we had studied uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? And uh, so in this one, it, it's pretty similar. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to read this as much as maybe just kind of give us some space. Like, is there anything in the reading of the 4,000 versus the 5,000 that you all think might have stood out in a little bit different way comparatively. Travis, anything from the 4,000 versus the 5,000 that really uh, stood out to you? Uh, I mean, other than the number and the 4,000, 5,000 difference and the seven and the 12, what they started with and what they ended up with the leftovers. Like, I think we kind of, I think somebody brought it up in the discussion forum as well. So I guess just the question of like, is there significance to those numbers how much effort and time do we need to spend looking into the significance and all of that? Anytime you hear 12 and seven, there's always going to be some sort of significance. Uh, I don't, it was hard for me because I, I mean, numbers were the same thing that stood out to me when I read through this initially, but I, I don't really know how to make them like super significant other than the fact that like, Hey, pay attention to this. Okay. There's a seven and there's a 12. So Jimmy, like, is there something bigger than that going on that we just are not attentive to? Like we know seven is the, the seven days of the week. Right. And that's the seven days of creation. 12 is the 12 tribes. Also the 12 disciples, like all of those things are significant, but why is that relative to this story of the feedings? Jay, it's a mystery, and if you don't understand it, then you do not have the ears to hear or the eyes to see. Oh my God, my heart has been hardened. <laughs> I mean, you're <laughs> okay. you're one of the people. Jesus says he tells things in parables so that people won't get it. And That's Jay, me. you're apparently part of that group. I can't. Uh, help Isaiah you. was speaking about me as well. Now, I, Shelley Johnson and I talked about this uh, on the discussion forum. Like, it feels like, man, there's something going on here because of twelve and seven and. He's in a Gentile area in the Gospel of Mark. Interestingly, Matthew kind of puts him not in a Gentile area, but um, it just feels like something. But I've read a lot of commentaries. It seems like everybody feels that way, right? Hey, something's going on here, but I can't. Nobody has really come up with anything that, that works, right? Mark, what are you up to? Yeah, yeah. 
So I don't really know. So we move from that scene to uh, verse 11 and Jesus uses an image and and we had had a a little bit of a side conversation about this, but he uses the image of yeast. And so least I said least and yeast, but it's because I'm playing Wardle (laughs) too much. Uh, And so least we're talking about yeast as part of this. And so verse 11, I'm just going to read a part of this and and we're going to talk a little bit about bread and why bread mattered so much and, and yeast and how Jesus uses yeast as a positive image in other parts of the Gospels. But in this one, it's more of a negative. So let's hear the word of God together. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, demanding of him. I'm reading from I'm changed my Bibles, by the way. This is Christian standard Bible. Uh, it's the one that is in my desk. And so it's what I read from. OK, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and only had one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? 12, they told him. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, do you not, do you understand yet? Or don't you understand yet? All right. So a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think a recurring thing that we're going to see here in eight, nine and 10 is the dullness of the disciples. Uh, I taught a Bible study on some of these passages last night uh, or on Wednesday night. And one of the things that is recurring in these, the disciples have spent so much time with Jesus has seen Jesus do unbelievable things. And yet in these moments are still incapable of fully getting what's going on. And we'll see that here a little bit in chapter eight specifically as well. And so um, there's a lot to unpack here. So I don't want to move too quickly. So the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus. Uh, and then in this translation, it's 11, but, but obviously it could be, or yeast. Um, I, th- I do think it's kind of when I was thinking about this podcast and this conversation, like in 2020 and 2021, there are more people that know what it's like to make bread than at <laughs> any point in my lifetime. So this passage now has a significance for a collection of Christians who became bakers during COVID shutdown uh, and sourdough bread and yeast and watching it do what it does. Uh, But who wants to take this one and talk a little bit why the leaven or the yeast uh, was problematic in this frame of reference? How how can yeast be problematic? Like I can go to the store right now and I can buy yeast in a jar and it's all safe and it's all processed and in the first century, people had to make their own yeast, and you're actually letting something ferment to create yeast mix back into a batch. And yeast is a rising agent, you know, it spreads through. And so Jesus does use yeast as a positive example of the kingdom of God. Like the kingdom of God is like a woman who took three measures of flour and mixed in yeast and made all this bread, right? Truckloads of bread, block bread. Um Obviously, at Passover, uh, Jews are told not to make things in with yeast, and it becomes a tradition of clearing out yeast in the house. 
And in some cases, that gets associated with sin, but it was really about, in the biblical story, it's about the quickness. You, you don't have time to let bread rise. You're getting out of here. Um, but yeast, you know, if yeast goes bad in the first century, if some kind of fermented leavening agent goes bad, you could make everybody sick. Yeast has an impact. It's a hidden thing that you can't see that has an impact, and it has positive and or negative effects. And so I think part of that hidden element is part of it. You don't really know. You see the effects of it. And Jesus is saying, hey, be careful what kind of yeast you put into yourselves kind of a thing. Uh, but it's a mixed thing. It wasn't always compared to sin. I mean, it, it goes both ways metaphorically. So, Shelley, um, when you hear, when you read this passage where the disciples are searching for sustenance, right? We only have one loaf. Like, how, what do you do when you process that? Like what, so uh, part of this, and I've asked Jimmy and Travis this along the journey, like, and I'd love to get just kind of your input or your experience in this, uh, as you kind of unpack a little bit of how you read this. So what's your, so maybe like a minute and a half version of what your process as far as reading scripture is. And, and then in addition to that, um, not like, I don't need to know well every morning at this point, but like, how do you envelop yourself into the story or let the story kind of envelop uh, you and then the other thing I'd say is so what do you do when you you hear these disciples who just saw Jesus feed nine thousand men plus however many people over the course of you know however long a few weeks a few days and they still don't get what's going on so maybe two parter uh, take the floor. Well, thank you. I love getting into scripture with multicolored pens because I have just been learning, I guess, how much repetition there is. So like those numbers we were talking about, um, repeat, words repeat, phrases repeat. And so when we hear over and over again that the disciples still don't understand, I know that that has importance, it has weight, even if I don't understand it in the moment. So um, I have a Bible with margins. And so I write my questions down there. I draw arrows. Uh, anything that helps me try to, I like the phrase, connect the dots. And so in these feeding scenes, I think it is pretty significant. Like if I weren't underlining cities names, I wouldn't have caught that these were in completely different locations. And so is that significant? Is this a Gentile crowd versus the first crowd that he fed was Jew? And what difference does that make? And so I don't always come up with answers, but sometimes as I keep reading in the scripture, I'll find some ideas of maybe what Jesus was trying to teach. Because most of the time I feel like the disciples. I feel like, wait, I still don't get it. <laughs> um, and I think that's kind of the point. And then I could just jump way ahead in scripture to Acts and, and think of that time when they finally did get it, uh, when the Holy Spirit came. Yeah, I think I just keep going back to the fact that the disciples were so present yet so far away. And it actually frames this next one of these next passages, not the direct next one. I'm actually just for the sake of of content. We've we've dealt a lot with Jesus healing. Uh, this one is a little bit unique. And so uh, I don't want to just skip over. But this is <laughs> this is Jesus heals the same guy in like phases. So it's part one, does a little bit of work, and all I can see is everybody looks like trees. Part two, fully heals them. Uh, Jimmy, apparently there's something that we should be catching from this. 
like, but Travis, you kind of echoed the same question. Like what? Like any, anything else stick out to you before we kind of try to figure out why that has significance? As far as this healing goes. Yeah. I mean, I think you said it when you said what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, this is the first time I think like, I'm trying to remember the other occasions that Jesus has done a miracle and a healing like this, but he's never spit on someone that I have remembered. And so why does Mark point that out? Why does he tell this part of the story in that way and not, uh, the way that the rest of them have been so far? Yeah. I think these things sound strange to us. We, we did talk about this. Like, so the deaf mute man, Jesus spits and he may have actually spit. Jesus may have either spit on his hand or he may have spit on the guy. Like those things sound strange to us because we come from a 21st century scientific medical culture. That's not shamanistic and doesn't have rituals of healing necessarily. We think we don't. The truth is, is we do have some, but um, there's a story uh, that two Roman historians tell about the, the Roman emperor ultimately, but uh, Vespasian who had been a general in the Middle East, he's part of the destruction of the temple takes place in 70 AD. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a miracle that takes place in Egypt where a blind man and a lame man both come before Vespasian and we're like, we feel like you're supposed to to heal us. They're in the temple of Serapis. And uh, the blind man says, you know, spit, make spit and put it on my eyes. And Vespasian does it and the guy's healed. And so that's, a, that's also in the first century. And none of that, I just don't think that that would have been strange to them. So we're wrestling with something that Mark's audience would not have wrestled with. They would have been amazed. They'd have been like, wow, yes, even his spit. Uh, there's a saying in the Talmud that the spit of the firstborn is sacred and has healing powers. So there's also that element of things. And we talked about last week, like, you know, dogs lick their wounds and healing takes, you know, I think that's a natural, if you're watching the natural world in the first century, you think saliva has those healing properties. Um, but what is interesting is that Jesus does this two-phase process. He prays for a guy the first time, and it doesn't fully work, and Jesus has to pray for this guy a second time. And this only occurs in the Gospel of Mark. There's not another two-phase healing in the life of Jesus anywhere else in the Gospels. And uh, it may have been that Matthew and Luke, when they're kind of using Mark as a basis, they decided, we're going to leave that story out because we don't really know what to do with that. Because uh, they may have felt the same way that we do. Why does it take Jesus two times to do this? There's no conversation about faith or lack of faith. Jesus just does it twice. Uh, and then it works the second time. So it's an interesting story. I think liter- literary-wise, I think it makes sense that this story, the healing of the blind man, follows immediately after this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples about not being able to see. Uh, also, there's two, you know, we asked that question, why are there two... Uh, feeding of the, of the thousands stories, 5,000 and 4,000, which is also only in Matthew and Mark, the two stories. Maybe it takes a second time for the disciples to get it, just like it takes a second time for this blind man to be healed. They don't really, they're still blind. Um, and, you know, Jesus is comparing his disciples to that Mark chapter four crowd. Mark often points back where Jesus did say, I tell these things so that it'll be hidden and he tells his disciples, but everything's been revealed to you. But here we are four chapters later, and he's like, you guys don't understand it either. And he quotes himself, like, you're hearing but not hearing, and you're seeing but not seeing. Are you still that way? And I think there's a maybe a literary trope here about there is also, there's a physical blindness and there's spiritual blindness. And Jesus is addressing both, right, in some way. But uh, it's a fascinating story. 
Yeah. And one of the other things, and I, I, I meant to mention this a little bit earlier, like I think when Jesus talks about signs, it's, it, it, it was confusing for me a little bit because Jesus had done many signs and wonders in front of them. Right. So there's specifically when they're asking for Jesus to perform a sign, it's, I think that there's at least part of us where we can assume that they're not asking with true pure intentions, right? Like it's, and I think that it even says that they're trying to trap him. Um, and, but he, they've been, and we've seen numerous times that there were, there were scholars or, you know, law study scholars of the law, right? Teachers of the law and Pharisees who were around when he healed the guy on the mat that came to the ceiling. There's so many of these things that had taken place and they would have known what was going on. Like they would have, even if it wasn't, they were directly in the room with it. They're hearing these stories of the, the deaf man that can now hear the, the demon possessed that, can now move around freely without that evil spirit or Jairus is, you know, like Jairus was a teacher in the synagogue, his daughter, like they would have known all of this. And it wasn't some sort of like Jesus was rejecting signs altogether. Like, even though that's kind of what he says, like this generation will not see them because they already have seen them and they will continue to see them uh, as Jesus heads his way as Calvary as part of our part of the story. So uh, which moves us pretty, it's a pretty nice transition to, uh, when I did my initial inductive Bible study course over the gospel of Mark is kind of what stands at the center of um, Mark's gospel is the story of Peter's confession. Uh, and it's really these next three that are directly tethered together. These next three sections, it's Peter's confession. It's Peter's rebuke. And then Jesus is re rebuke. And then it's Jesus telling people what it means to follow him through suffering. And so, uh, you're going to hear that a lot. Suffering is a, a big part of Jesus's story, obviously. And so just catch that as you kind of follow through this. And so I'm actually going to read that all together. And then I'm going to go around the circle here and just give everybody a chance to speak on some things that stood out to them. So get your get your thoughts prepared, Travis, Shelley, Jimmy, and uh, let's get into it. This is verse 27 of Mark chapter eight. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them not to tell anyone. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes to be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Verse 34, calling the crowd along with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Travis, let's start with you. Three major scenes just taking place here at the end of chapter 8. Uh, maybe give me just a few things that, that immediately stick out to you in these passages. Uh, 
it's hard um because th- this is one of those sections that i like there aren't as many symbols and things like it says jesus is speaking plainly and so i've, I've been kind of in the habit of trying to look into things that are symbols and that have extra meaning and uh a lot of this is really straightforward and a lot of it is really heavy um and so i i don't know i don't i don't know that i have a lot of questions or insight um other than relating to peter in this moment like that maybe it was a lucky guess when he said that jesus is the christ like uh cuz right after that he kind of makes a mistake again. And so that back and forth, um, and you know, Jesus's rebuke of him in that moment, like initially sounds really harsh and it's like, is Jesus mad at him? And, um, you know, I, I think that he still, um, obviously he still loves Peter and it's not like a, you're not my disciple anymore, even though he's refers to him as Satan, which I know that that word means like the adversary. And so it's kind of like, He's not calling him that evil being, but he's just saying like, I think you don't realize you're working against me, brother. And um, anyway, so, I mean, that's, that's just where I get from it. And I want to know what you guys also get so I can get more. (laughs) Travis, that is so good. Get behind me, brother. Oh, yes. Um, Peter is one that... I feel like I identify with because I kind of think he does get it. Um, Just my take on he gets that he's Messiah. But in his enthusiasm, he doesn't realize he doesn't get the whole picture of what Messiah means. Um, My understanding is a lot of the disciples, if not all of them, assumed Messiah would come like this king warrior riding in on a chariot and kind of defeat the Romans and establish the new Israel, right? And so they just, they kind of keep asking these same questions. Okay, God, okay, Jesus, when, when, when are you going to do this grand thing and overturn all of our oppressors? And so I guess in one way I look at it, he gets it, but he doesn't get it. And so he's going to tell Jesus that he's wrong, which amazes <laughs> me <laughs> that he'll take um, that. But then, like you said, Jesus doesn't mince any words, but what caught my eye this time that I hadn't noticed before is that, you know, Peter had pulled Jesus aside to have this little conversation, but then Jesus turns to the disciples and pulls them into the mm-hmm. conversation. So Jimmy, is what's, what's there to learn from that? I just think it's great literature. I mean, the, the image that you just created, right? Like, Here's Peter like, hey, Jesus, come here for a second. I got This is not right. And you got to think about where they're at. They're at Caesarea Philippi. So here's a town named after Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar who was alive when Jesus was born. And Caesars, we know how, we know how kings in the world rule. They come in and they do. They kill people and they subject people. And this idea of the Messiah was that here's going to be a Jewish king who's going to come in and subject the nations and the Jews are going to be on top of things and not everybody else. And so when he says, hey, guess what, guys? I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. I think that that was rocking Peter's world. Like he, Peter did get it, but it wasn't in the framework that, that he wanted. But Peter is trying to do that quietly. Hey, Jesus. And what it says is Jesus, in this gospel, it says that Jesus turns not just to the disciples, but to the crowd, right? Like, okay, you want to talk about this privately, Peter, but let me say the whole thing. And there's a phrase, I you know, we talk sometimes about English translations and 
<clears throat> things that I wish that they could convey. They're just difficult when you're doing translation. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And that phrase, get behind me, has been used in, in the Gospel of Mark from the very beginning, from the first chapter. Come after me, opisomu. He tells the disciples in Mark chapter 1, come after me, follow me, get behind me. Uh, John, the, John the Baptist says the same thing about Jesus. There is one who comes after me who is greater than me. And that phrase, opisomu, everywhere in the gospel is used for discipleship. So he is, I think, Travis, I think you got, that's a good catch. I think he's saying to Peter, hey, get in right alignment. Like you're being an adversary to me, but be my disciple, come after me. And so in the very next paragraph, um, when he's telling people, he says, whoever, <clears throat> uh, in verse 20, uh, 34, he says, if anyone would opisomu, if anyone would follow after, he uses the same word, the same two words that he uses about telling Peter to get behind me, Satan. So he is contrasting, like you're being an adversary, but if you really want to be my disciple, understand that you got to follow me, and that means that you have to give up everything. You have to take up your cross. And I think that this is kind of like that blind man. Peter gets it, but he sees people walking around like, like trees. It's not fully there yet. He is seeing, and Jesus is now explaining plainly to everybody. There's no secrets anymore. Let me tell you what's happening. And they still don't quite get it. Jesus is talking about being suffering and resurrecting, and they're like, wait, what is this resurrection thing? But it's just a great scene, like this this whole thing. You see Peter struggle. You hurt. I hurt for Peter because he gets it, but he's not there yet. And uh, I think that's us, right? We get it, but we're not there yet a lot of times. But Jesus is, the interesting thing is I think Jesus is frustrated. I, you know, it'd be nice if Jesus is just like, no, no, hold on, guys, you'll get it. But I think he is also like, oh, gosh, the human part of Jesus is like, I just, this is getting tiresome, but I'm going to keep telling you. I'm going to keep doing the things that God has called me to do. Uh, and I think part of his suffering, I think, is probably this emotional suffering of having a group of people around him who's so close who don't know him and don't get it. That'd be so lonely, I think. Um, and and the, the prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah 53 that Mark doesn't address, but we know that in the New Testament it's there, uh, is, is that suffering servant is a lonely person. It's somebody that nobody wants to have anything to do with. And I think Jesus feels that loneliness here. So... Uh, I don't know, it's a fast. This is exactly in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. I think Mark is a literary genius. He he knows what he's doing. I think he was thinking about pages, right, or the length of a scroll, and he puts this pivot point in the middle. Uh, we know that from literary sources talking about literature, they understood the pivot point of stories. Aristotle talks about the middle of the story, and Mark is doing that right here. This is the key thing. Jesus is the Messiah, and now what are you going to do with it? Right. So great, great piece. And what we see is that the disciples uh, still don't get it. So they know that Jesus is the Messiah. But I, as I was reading that, I think that especially following up in nine and 10 is you can still quite, you can see that they don't quite get what that means. You know, Jesus is Messiah. They don't quite get that what that means. So that concludes chapter eight. And so we're going to actually break this up into two pods. And so that was chapter eight. Thank you so much for joining us. Part of that. One of the things you can do is always share this with somebody. Hopefully you're reading along with us. Read-scripture.com. But we'll be back here in just a few minutes with chapter nine. So thanks for joining us. <laughs>